I, I read about a man in the Bible by the name of Obed-Edom who was from the priestly lineage. And when they were bringing the Ark of the Covenant from the Philistines, and they, they, were, they were carrying the ark, you remember, and, and uh, a couple of the, of the priests were following the ark, and they had it on a cart, which should not have been. They were supposed to carry it on their shoulders, but they had it on an ox cart, and they're bringing it back from wherever it was, and, and, and they, they were crossing over something, and the ox, ox stumbled, and one of them reached out to, to steady the ark of the covenant, and when they did, when they touched it, the Lord struck them dead. And so they were afraid. They didn't want to take it any farther. So they were looking for a place they could put it. So they found someone of priestly lineage. His name was Obed-Edom. So they asked if they could put the Ark of the Covenant in his house. And they did. And a beautiful thing happened. This man started getting blessed. I mean, it was in his house for three months, and this guy was so blessed. And so you follow Obed-Edom after that experience. And even when they brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem, you remember David dancing before the Lord and everything else? Guess who was following the Ark? You got it, Obed-Edom. And Obed-Edom started volunteering for everything because he wanted to be close to the Ark. They needed a security guard. He said, I'm in. They needed a worshiper. He says, count me in. They needed someone to, to clean around it, a janitor. He said, I'm your man because he just wanted to be close to the presence of God. And I was thinking about that this morning. I, I've already had church before I got here this morning. I mean, it was awesome just watching this and experiencing that because I'm so hungry for a move of God. I'm so hungry for God to move His presence. And, you know, that's, my message this morning is about He is my confidence. And, and I want to just share a couple of passages of Scripture out of Proverbs 14, 26. It says, confidence and strength flood the hearts of the lovers of God who live in awe of Him. And their devotion provides their children with a place of shelter and security. You see, God provides us with a sense of confidence and security when we anchor our hopes in Him. But if we lose sight of where our help comes from, we set ourselves up for a downfall. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The Passion Translation says, your boast becomes a prophecy of future failure. The higher you lift yourself up in pride, the harder you'll fall in disgrace. And confidence is a good thing, right? But overconfidence can become a trap and a stumbling block. I don't know if you all have ever heard of a particular golfer by the name of Arnold Palmer. Anybody ever heard of him? Probably one of the most famous names in golf ever. And, and he, he, he told a, a story about overconfidence. He said it was the final hole of the 1961 Masters Tournament. I was only six years old then. And I had a one-stroke lead and had just hit a very satisfying tee shot. I felt like I was in pretty good shape. And as I approached my ball, I saw an old friend standing at the edge of the gallery. He motioned me over, stuck out his hand, and said, congratulations. I took his hand and shook it. But as soon as I did, I knew I had lost my focus. On my next two shots, I hit the ball into a sand trap, then put it over the edge of the green. I missed a putt and lost the Masters. You don't forget a mistake like that. You just learn from it and become determined that you'll never do it again. And he says, I have it in the 30 years since. You see, we have to stay focused. 
We have to stay focused on, on what really, really matters. You know that half of all drownings happen to adults and kids who can swim? Most of the time, people drown. It's not the people who can't swim because they won't get in the water. But it's the ones who get overconfident, good swimmers that drown. We, you know, when we lived out at the beach, we, we, we experienced it all the time. You know, people get out there and just get overconfident and, and get swept out to sea or they drown or whatever because they, lose, they, they get overconfident. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, the Passion Translation says, My dear fellow believers, you need to understand that the, all of our Jewish ancestors who walked through a wilderness long ago were under the glory cloud and passed through the waters of the sea on both sides. They were all, everybody say all, they were all baptized into the cloud of glory, into the fellowship of Moses, and into the sea. They all ate the same heavenly manner and drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ himself. Yet God was not pleased with most of them, and their dead bodies were scattered across the wilderness. Now, all these things serve as types and pictures for us, lessons that teach us not to fail in the same way by callously craving worthless things. Remember what I said? You've got to stay focused. And practicing idolatry, as some of them did, for it is written, the people settled into their unrestrained revelry, revelry with feasting and drinking, then rose up and became wildly out of control. And he says in verse 8, eight neither should we commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, which caused the death of 23,000 on a single day. Nor should we ever provoke the Lord, as some of them did, by putting him to the outrageous test that resulted in their deaths from snake bite day after day. And we must not embrace their ways by complaining, grumbling with discontent, as many of them did and were killed by the destroyer. Well, that puts things in pretty good context. Did you realize that murmuring and complaining is, is as big a sin as sexual immorality? Wow. All the tests they endured on their way through the wilderness are a symbolic picture, an example that provides us with a warning so that we can learn through what they experienced. For we live in a time when the purpose of all the ages is past, ages past is now completing its goal within us. So beware, if you think it could never happen to you, lest your pride becomes your downfall. We all experience times of testing, which is normal for every human being, but God will be faithful to you. He will screen and filter the severity, nature, and timing of every test or every trial you face so that you can bear it, and each test is an opportunity to trust Him more, for along with every trial, God has provided a way for, uh, for you, a way of escape that will bring you out of it victoriously. Now, I thought of a couple... Old Testament examples of people who were lifted up in pride. There was a king by the name of Uzziah, not Isaiah, but he's mentioned in, in Isaiah chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah said he was in the temple and he saw the Lord. Now, the, the reason he mentioned that was because Isaiah prophesied during the time of Uzziah. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king. 16 years old, and he was influenced by a particular priest, Zechariah, who poured into him. And as long as Zechariah was around pouring into him, Uzziah received the instruction of the Lord, and he was a good king. 
And it says in verse 5 that as long as he sought the Lord, God called him to prosper. Think about that. As long as he sought the Lord, God called him to prosper. Now, the things he did were amazing. He was an amazing architect, and he was a great a war strategist as well, and, and he built up defenses around Judah. He you know, came up with all kinds of machinery and stuff, war machinery and arrows and things that would hurl boulders and all kinds of stuff that he put on the walls of Jerusalem you know, that protected the people, and, and he was a great farmer. He, God gave him all this wisdom and everything, and, and what happened over time, Uzziah became lifted up in himself, and he became proud. And his pride caused him to do something stupid. Everybody say pride will cause you to do stupid things. And so one day, he took it upon himself to go into the temple. Now, the king, though he was king, was not allowed in the temple. Who was allowed in the temple? The priest. And he goes into the temple and goes into the Holy of Holies. To burn incense before the altar, on the altar of incense. And the priests are begging him not to do it. And he became angry at them. There were 80 priests who followed him into the, to the temple telling him, don't do this. This is not your place to burn incense before the Lord. This is for the priests. They're the only ones that are anointed to do this. This is not your place. You have your place. You're the king. Don't do it. But he became angry at them. He's doing his thing, and as he's doing this thing, one of the priests happened to notice that a spot of leprosy had appeared on his forehead, and it's starting to grow. And the Bible says that when the priest pointed out to him what was happening, it says that they were eager to leave the temple, and in fact, Uzziah was eager to go as well. He realized his pride had gotten him in trouble. Uzziah's light for the rest of his plight for the rest of his life was to live apart from the rest of the kingdom. He had to be put in isolation as a leper. He could not be around the people that he loved. He couldn't be in the, even in the castle that he loved. He was put in a place where lepers were assigned. And that's how he spent the rest of his life until the year Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah chapter 6 in the year Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Pride brought him down. God had raised him up to a position of authority and power, had given him riches and wisdom, and as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. Listen, as long as we seek the Lord and realize that our strength can never accomplish anything, we have to depend on the strength of the Lord. I don't care how talented you are, how beautiful you are, how amazing you are, how intelligent you are, how rich you are. It doesn't matter. All that matters is Him. It's in His strength. It's in His power. It's an age-old problem that we have that raises its ugly head, this thing called pride. One of my friends who's in heaven now, just before he passed away, Tim Daniel wrote a song called Utterly Dependent. 
about being utterly dependent upon the grace of God. How do I do the things that I do? How can I minister before the Lord? How can I be what God wants me to be? I have to be utterly dependent upon the grace of God. Beautiful song. I mean, it ought to be out there somewhere. It needs to be on the radio. Somebody needs to record that. I might just do that for him. I don't know. But it's so important. Samson is another young man who had lots of promise. I, I preach a message about whatever happened to Samson. Samson was good looking, that long, beautiful hair, strong. I mean, he didn't even have to work out. You know, he was just naturally built. When I was in school, there was a guy that we, that was in my, he was a couple classes ahead of me. And this guy never had to work out or nothing, but he looked like he would wear overalls to school. He looked like Lil Abner. Y'all ever remember the, the cartoon Lil Abner? Had shoulders about that wide and a waist about that wide. And arms about like that. He kind of reminded me of what I've pictured Samson being like. You know, he was just... You know, this beefy guy and, and strong, and, and, and Samson was all that, you know. He was raised as a Nazarite, though. And the Nazarite was given a pledge. They were, sold, they were sold to the Lord. They were given to the Lord at birth. They were assigned to serve the Lord. They couldn't drink any wine. They couldn't cut their hair. They were, you know, certain restrictions in their life that they were, and as long as they did, they had their strength. Samson had that strength, man. He was bad to the bone. Matter of fact, he took a bone one time and killed a thousand Philistines with it. You know, he, he was amazing. And, and, and then he did something stupid. You know, his pride caused him, pride caused you to do stupid things. He met a girl named Delilah. And Delilah vamped him. Boy, she put it on him, man. And the Philistines knew that they could use Delilah to get to Samson because they wanted to kill him. They didn't like him. He killed a thousand of their own. I mean, he had embarrassed them so many times. They would try to restrain him. They tied him to a gate one time to the city, and he just ripped the gate up and everything and carried away. I mean, he was that strong, and nothing could hold him. They would put, put brand new ropes on him. He'd just break them like threads. You know, there was nothing. And Samson was, he got overconfident, you know, and so Delilah would ask him, darling, what's the secret of your strength? Well, you know, if, if you take my hair and, and you weave it into a weaver's beam, I become weak like a kitten. So, you know, she put him into a deep sleep. Don't ask me how she got him to sleep like that, but whatever she vamped him with was some powerful stuff because he's asleep and she weaves his hair in. And then all of a sudden she says, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He just ripped his hair out and went out and beat them up, you know, and they go, that didn't work. Then she, he said, next time she says, well, Samson, why do you lie to me? What really is your strength? He said, I'll tell you what, darling. He says, if you take some new cords and you bind my hands with it, he says, I can't break them. Can't break them. So she did, same thing, you know, like, Samson, the Philistines are up on you. Rip. Out he goes. And she keeps after him. Samson, why do you lie to me? Don't you love me? Samson, if you really love me, you'd tell me the truth. I'm starting to believe you're a liar, Samson. And she whined and she moaned and 
She mommicked him to the point that he just couldn't stand it anymore. He said, well, I'll tell you the truth. Because I guess he thought, there's no way she's going to do this. If you shave my head, I'll become just like other men. So she vamped him again. I don't know what toxins she gave him, but boy, she put it on him. And he was sound asleep, so asleep that she shaved his head. I mean, you got to be pretty sleepy. I can't even stand for somebody to touch my face. You got to be totally out of it. I mean, he was zonked. And she cut his hair and shaved his head. This time, when she yelled out and said, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he jumped up and he says, I will go out as I did before. Only something had happened. He lost his strength. And this time, they bound him up. They took him. They gouged out his eyes. And they would make sport of him. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We can't mock God. We can't make mockery of him. We have to understand that everything that we are and everything that God has put in us has, has, has brought us to a place that we have to be totally, utterly dependent upon the Lord. So the age-old problem of spiritual pride raises its head from time to time, and it has to be dealt with. And you know, it's something that a, a leader normally won't have to do, because when we raise up against the leadership that God has put in place, guess who we are raising up and rebelling against? God. We rebel against Him. When we rebel against the authority that the Lord has put over us, it's not that you're rebelling against them. You're rebelling against the Lord. That's why the Bible tells us to, to submit to those who have the authority over us. So it's God that we resist. It's not people. Peter wrote in his first letter to the leaders and those who were growing up under, under those leaders in 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5. He said, Now I encourage you as an elder and eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ and one who shares in the glory that is about to be unveiled, I urge my fellow elders among you to be compassionate shepherds who tenderly care for God's flock and who feed them well, for you have the responsibility to guide, protect, and oversee. Consider it a joyous pleasure, not merely a religious duty. Lead from the heart under God's leadership, not as a way to gain finances dishonestly, but as a way to eagerly and cheerfully serve. And don't be controlling tyrants, but lead others by your beautiful example to the flock. And when the shepherd king appears, you will win the, win the victor's crown of glory that never fades away. And then he flips it and he says, in the same way, the younger ones should, be, should willingly support the leadership of the elders in every relationship. Each of you must wrap around yourself the apron of a humble servant because, because what? Because God resists you when you are proud but multiplies grace and favor when you are humble. Humility and faith, we got to have it. If you, if you bow low in God's awesome presence, He will eventually exalt you as you leave the timing in His hand. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 3, Paul's instructing Timothy about setting up the churches that, that, 
that he and, and, and Timothy had, had uh, founded in Ephesus, and this is what he's telling them. He says, if any of you aspires to be an overseer, which is a bishop or an elder in the church, you set your heart toward a noble ambition, for the word is true. Yet an elder needs to be one who is without blame before others. He or they should be the one whose heart is for his wife or his, their spouse alone and not for another woman. And, and I, I clarify that because, you know, Paul is speaking mostly to men, but there are women elders. We have two of them in our church. And just flip it. He, he or she should be recognized as one who is sensible and well-behaved and living a disciplined life. They should be a spiritual shepherd, one who has the gift of teaching and is known for their hospitality. They cannot be a drunkard or someone who lashes out at others or argumentative or someone who simply craves more money, but instead is rec recognized by their gentleness. The heart should be, a, be set on guiding their household with wisdom and dignity, bringing up their children to worship with devotion and purity. For if they're unable to properly lead their own household well, how could they possibly lead God's household? And verse 6 says, and, and I'm going to put the word they, they should not be a new disciple who would be vulnerable to living in the clouds of conceit and fall into pride, making them easy prey for Satan. They should be respected by those who are unbelievers, having a beautiful testimony among them so that they will not fall into the trap of Satan and be disgraced. And I just want to say this, that, that you know, in, in my years of ministry, which are quite a few, I have witnessed many young men and women of God who are amazingly talented, who are super intelligent. Many of them have a divine anointing upon their life, but one thing they lack is the ability to submit to authority and grow up under the leadership of someone who can train them up in the ways of the Lord and help commission them and send them, send them forth. The word ordain in the Old Testament in, in the book of Exodus chapter 28, God told Moses to take the two sons of Aaron and Aaron himself and to ordain them. And the word ordain in the Hebrew is the word mele, M-E-L-E, yad. Mele means authority or the outpouring of authority and yad is hand. It's the outpouring of the authority of God into your hand. And what it is saying, we ordain you and send you forth. That's what ordination is. It's not a thing you hang on the wall that says I'm ordained. It's that someone else recognizes the authority of God in your life and has said, I see God in you. And we recognize the call of God on your life, just as Paul did Timothy, and he reminded Timothy not to be afraid. He says, for not, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but a power and a love and of a sound mind, which was put upon you when the elders laid their hands upon you, and they ordained you. When we have that confidence in knowing that other people see God in us, they recognize that God has placed his authority in you and that you are ready to step out and do what God has called you to do. And I've had some, you know, that we have sent out and others have just went out. And there's a difference. Those that are sent out, we send out with the authority of God upon them. We recognize the call. We recognize that they are ready, that they paid the price of leadership 
and have allowed themselves to serve and have grown up under someone and they have received the ability, therefore, to receive the mantle just as Elisha received the mantle of Elijah. Now, how long was it when Elisha met Elijah before Elijah was taken up and Elisha received his mantle? It was years. It didn't happen overnight. God told Elijah when his time was about up, Elijah had reached a point in his life where he was worn out. He was hiding from God. Remember, he was, he was then near the book Horeb and he was hiding and, and God said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah, the man who had, had, had killed the 400 prophets of Baal, the 450 prophets of Ashura, and, and this great man of God who had the contest on Mount Carmel, and now he's running from, from Jezebel because she said she's going to do to him the same thing he did to the prophets. And he's running from her. What was he afraid of? God says, what are you doing here? He said, Lord, they killed all the prophets. I'm the only one that's left. And God reminded him, look, Elijah, you ain't all that. He said, I have 7,000 who have not bent their knee to the bales. 7,000. You think you're the only one who has the anointing on you? No, 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 no. I got 7,000. And I don't care how big you are, how good you are, how big your ego is. It doesn't matter because there are others that God has called and he has chosen. Remember, God can even speak through a dumb donkey if he needs to. That gives me hope. Hallelujah. He can use a donkey. He can certainly use me. But the thing of it is, Elijah had reached a place in his life where he's starting to murmur and complain. And God pretty much said to Elijah, okay, Elijah, I hear you, dude. It's time for you to come on home. Not much more I can do with you. I want you to go back. I want you to anoint Elisha to be your successor. Elisha was a young man who followed Elijah around. And the greatest thing about Elisha up to this point was that it was said of him He's the one who washes the hands of Elijah. He served Elijah. And Elijah tried to discourage Elisha to see if Elisha would turn back. When they came to Jericho, he says, I must go. And he says, I'm going with you. They came to Jordan. He says, turn back, Elisha. You know, I'm going with you. Because he had his eye on something. What was that one thing he had his eye on? He had determined in his heart that he wanted to receive a double portion of what Elijah had because he saw God in him and he wanted him and he understood that if he was going to do anything in ministry that it couldn't be in himself, it couldn't be in his training as a prophet, it had to be in the anointing that Elijah had. And when he had the anointing, he said, I don't want just what Elijah's got, I want twice what Elijah's got. Elijah said, are you serious, Elisha? He says, yes, I'm serious. I'm not turning back. I'm not going to leave you. He said, well, if you see me when I'm taken up, you got it. Elisha stayed with him. He stayed with him. Even though Elijah, testing him, would say, Elisha, go back. I'm not going back until I get what I want. You see, 
in the pursuit of God and the understanding that it's got to be more than what we have. Our Everything that we have is worth nothing without the anointing of God. Everything that we have can't measure up to anything without the power and the anointing of God. If I don't have the power and the anointing of God, I might as well just go home and do something else because you got to have it. we got to have it. And Elisha stuck with it until he saw Elijah taken up. And when Elisha was taken up, what fell out of the sky? His mantle. He took it up. And when Elisha came back to the Jordan River, I got to see if I got it. Where's the God of Elijah? The Jordan River split open, and he walked over on dry ground. You see, he had the anointing. If you read the history of Elijah, there's 16 notable miracles that Elijah did. Guess how many are attributed to Elisha? 32. What did he get? We get what we ask for. We get what we believe for. I'm asking God for revival. I'm asking God to pour out his spirit upon this place. I want God to pour out the fire upon this place that the fire department up there will come and investigate and wonder what's going on. It's not that we have the knowledge and everything else. You know, knowledge puffs up. It says in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, we know we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That is to those that realize it's by grace and grace alone that we're anything. Paul said in and in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, he says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me is not without effect. So our confidence has got to be in him alone. You've been listening to Destiny City Church a community of believers committed to helping others find and fulfill their God-given destiny. For more information, visit us online at destinycity.org.